0: Hi, this is Janet Lansbury. Welcome to Unruffled. Today, I have the great pleasure of chatting with Dr. Anne Louise Lockhart. She's a pediatric psychologist. She's a parent coach and an author. She speaks nationally at schools and conferences and corporate workshops. And she coaches parents uh, who have kids with anxiety, behavioral issues, and ADHD. And she has a couple of kids. So this is a very busy person. I'm thrilled she's taken the time to join me today to discuss anxiety in children, what we can do to prevent and help. Hi, Dr. Lockhart. How are you?
1: I'm doing good, Janet. How are you doing?
0: I'm doing really well. Thank you so much. I I feel like I know you. I've been following your work for a long time, and I'm so glad to finally actually get to meet I've been looking at your bio and really noticing the breadth of your work. It's incredible. And just want to say thank you so much for all the service that you provide to parents and other professionals.
1: Thank you. I appreciate that. I've been following your work as well, too. So the feeling is definitely mutual. And, you know, I think we've done things parallel, being on some conferences together and that kind of stuff, but never directly together. So I'm really, I'm happy to be here and talking with you about the stuff that we both love as well, too
0: one of the many things that you help parents with is when they have children who have anxiety and other behavioral concerns i wanted to kind of zero in in this podcast on anxiety this is a time for anxiety if there ever was one globally and there's people that have chronic issues and then worry that their children are maybe moving into that and i wanted to hear your take and what we can do as parents First of all, maybe how do you as a clinician define anxiety?
1: Yeah, that's a great question, because I think that people use a lot of mental health diagnosis and terms interchangeably with just regular speak. You know, when we say, oh, my gosh, the weather is so bipolar or, oh, my gosh, that movie was so schizophrenic. We use a lot of those kind of mental health terms to describe everyday life. And it's very inaccurate most of the time. And so I think anxiety disorders are one of those things because we have feelings like fear and worry, and then we have anxiety disorders, which can include a lot of things like a fear of being in a crowded space where you can't escape, which is agoraphobia. We have panic disorders. We have specific phobias, so fear of dogs or snakes or flying. We have generalized anxiety, which is kind of a general feeling of uneasiness about a multiple sorts of things. They actually included selective mutism a few years ago into the anxiety disorders spectrum of diagnoses as well, too. So you have a lot of different things that cover that. So really what distinguishes fear and worry from an anxiety disorder that's severe is when it causes significant impairment on your everyday functioning. It's one thing if you're a little afraid of dogs, for example, or spiders, and you just don't like them. But if you're like constantly checking corners and you're obsessive about it and you're always asking for reassurance from your parents and making sure that nothing is going to hurt you in the middle of the night, you sure there's no spiders in my bed, mommy? And it's constant and it's impacting their ability to function in their everyday life. That's when we're looking at more of like an anxiety disorder type thing. And that's where the category of anxiety falls because it impacts everything, school, learning, friendships their thought life, all of that kind of stuff. And that's where that distinction between the worry and anxiety come into place.
0: And what causes that? Where, you know, maybe the, like you said, it's the one time being afraid when they see that animal or spider or whatever, but when it goes from that to now I'm checking every corner and doing very unreasonable things around this.
1: It's a a variety of things. There's a hereditary factor. So there's a lot of People that it's just in your family where a lot of people, when I'm talking to them and doing an intake, they'll say, yeah, you know, anxiety runs in my family. My mom was a worrier. My grandma was a worrier and her grandma was a worrier. And so it's kind of like this hereditary factor. There's a genetic component to it, but there's also a learned component as well too, where if you have a parent who's a very anxious person and they act in anxious ways, then if you're around them, then you are going to be more likely to be anxious as well. When I was growing up, for example, my mom was hugely afraid of frogs and I grew up on an island. So I grew up in the Virgin Islands and we're surrounded by water and she loved plants. So we had plants lining the entry to our front door and where do frogs hang out in moist plants? (laughs) (laughs) So there would be these huge frogs over our doorway and that's the only way to get in the house. And so then she would be like, okay, well, like, I guess we can't go inside the house. And I'm like, um, so what are we supposed to do? (laughs) (laughs) So that I started becoming hypervigilant and scanning all the time because then I'm like, oh, well, what if there's a frog? Because the frogs on the island are huge. They're they're huge. So then it kind of became this learned fear of frogs because she was so worried. I picked up on it from her. Would I have been afraid of frogs if she hadn't been? Maybe, maybe not. But it can also be a learned factor because anxiety is not something that we just have. It's something that can be learned, definitely. But then there's another piece of it, which is there's a predisposition factor where there are some personalities and temperaments that are predisposed or more likely to have anxiety or have an anxiety disorder because they're more sensitive or they're more uh, observant or they're uh, very in tune with their environment. And there's a lot of evidence that shows that individuals who are more intelligent even are more likely to be anxious because they have very divergent ways of thinking. They're kind of outside the box kind of thinkers. So they're always thinking of what could possibly go wrong anyway. And that's just how they normally think about things.
0: And sensitive, picking up all these different layers all the time of things that are going on. Yeah. That makes so much sense, though, about the environmental factor of the parent having that power since children are always looking to their parents to check their center and really hoping or needing those parents to be centered as much as possible. And, you know, you see it when children are even, they fall and they look up at their parent to see, what do you think about this? Is this all right? Like, am I going to be okay? And children are picking up everything constantly from their parents. So what do parents do if... They are like your mother or they are very easily anxious or they have clinical anxiety. How do parents manage this to try not to have it uh, affect their children so much?
1: Yeah, that's a great question. And the thing is that when I often see children or teens with anxiety, I prefer to see them along with their parent because as I teach the child or the teen about specific strategies, I also want the parent to learn because more often than not, the parent is also struggling with it. And the cool thing about anxiety strategies is that they're pretty much universal across the board. You just tweak it a little bit based on age to make it more digestible for a child to understand. And so I think a big part of it is for the parent that they need to address their own anxiety. They need to do the work like anything else, right? Is that we have things that are going on that we've been rehearsing and habituating for decades, which is often the case, then we've gotten really good at being anxious and um, it's just an automatic default. And so if our kids are constantly hearing and seeing and living it out, then we're always reinforcing it. So they can get all the help they they want, but if you are still then reinforcing the, the other way of thinking, then it's gonna be hard for them to get out of that anxious mindset. So I think a big part of it first is the parent has to be aware that they actually do have anxiety and then do the work to overcome that so they're not constantly giving it to their child. And I think that's a really, really important first step.
0: And this is just one of the many, many important ways that children inspire us to work on ourselves in a positive way and heal ourselves. And
1: Yeah, exactly. For me, I always like to start with education because once you can understand this is what this is, this is why you meet the criteria for this diagnosis, for example, if that's the case, Or this is how it impacts you physically, emotionally, mentally, cognitively. When you can get that and you understand where it comes from, then when you start learning the strategies, you understand why the strategies work. So I always like to start, you know, with that insight, kind of doing your work, the education, and then starting out with a very basic, the easiest type of stuff, which is just the deep diaphragmatic breathing. So teaching the parent and teaching the child how to take deep belly breaths. Because that helps with a lot of physical anxiety. And that's just one component of anxiety. But teaching the child to have control over their body, that they have agency over the way they react physically to something and they can respond instead, can be really empowering because that's what happens a lot with anxiety. You're having this panic attack and you can't breathe. You think you're going to pass out. You think you're going to throw up. You're sweating profusely. You're shaking your body is literally in control and you don't even feel like you have any type of say in what's happening. But if you can teach some deep breathing, then you can say, okay, this is what's happening to your body. That's through the education. Your blood pressure is going up. Your breathing is becoming shallow because all of the blood and all the breath is kind of centered in your chest area. We got to bring that down, bring it into your belly and allow you to breathe in, hold it and breathe out. There's all different kinds of breathing techniques that you can learn but that's really, really important to teach that individual that you do have control over your body um, and the way you physically respond to this trigger.
0: And then is there anything else that you generally
1: do? Yes. to Yes. So another big part is helping them to redirect their focus so that their thoughts don't become the enemy. Because what often parents will do is say, oh, just don't worry. <laughs> and although that's well-intentioned, that's not easy. Obviously, people don't want to worry. And if they could stop worrying they would. So we want to then instead be aware that we're even having the anxiety or the worry in the first place and then help them to redirect it to something else. So maybe saying like a mantra or an affirmation. Yes, I know that frogs look nasty and gross, but I will be okay. Or I know that the dark is uncomfortable for me, but I know that I'm safe. So being able to acknowledge it and then replacing it with something that's a more helpful and more adaptive thought. And then using a lot of affirmations to kind of make like this new imagery. I like to use a lot of visual and sensory imagery. So, what would be a safe thought, a safe place? And integrating like what you would hear, see, smell, taste, feel. What would the temperature be? Who would be there? And creating this whole imagery to kind of help ground you that you're safe and that you're okay.
0: Right. And I think normalizing that it's okay to have that feeling, like instead of saying, don't worry you are worried about this, this is troubling you, this is bothering you, and even wanting to know more about that and actually letting ourselves go there. I actually had a bout with anxiety this summer. I think many people have this year, and it was kind of this free-floating thing. Um, I wasn't thinking anything in particular, but it was like a constant state of like a stress cycle. And I realized that there was some grieving I actually needed to do that I hadn't done like kind of long ago, grieving, and it sort of came up for me. And that was part of my healing process to actually feel the feelings that were underneath the anxiety. Do you ever get the feeling that anxiety, sometimes when we get caught up in that, it's, it's like we're kind of avoiding the deeper feelings that are behind it?
1: Oh, definitely. Because one of the things that people mistakenly do is that they engage in a strategy that they think is actually a coping strategy and it's actually an avoidance strategy. So for example, if you say that I have anxiety about studying for my test because I don't think I'm going to pass. So I'm going to take a nap because my body needs rest because I'm feeling very anxious about the test. So then you think, oh, taking a nap is a coping strategy. No, what you need to do is study. Taking a nap is actually an avoidance strategy. And that's the problem with a lot of strategies is that it can seem like it's a coping when it's actually an avoidance or saying, okay, I'm going to go for a walk because you know I'm feeling overwhelmed by what's going on in my house. And so then, yeah, going for a walk might be a coping strategy. But if you have a lot of things that you need to do that you've been avoiding doing and you're procrastinating, that's actually an avoidance strategy. It's a fine line between the two, but one of the things that we do know the, the biggest thing that feeds anxiety is avoidance. When you avoid, it creates this short-term relief of, oh, okay, great. Now I don't have to deal with this studying the test. Okay, great. Now, now I don't have to deal with all this loads of laundry, or I don't have to deal with speaking and on this particular topic to this person that I have to talk to. But then what you're doing is you're reinforcing for your brain. Oh, okay. So avoiding that actually provides short-term relief, and then it further reinforces the anxiety. And then you have this whole cycle all over again. So avoidance is like the worst thing to do. And that's what a lot of really effective parents do is that they think, okay, I'll just pull my kid out of this um, program. Or I'll just tell them that, no, they're not going to go back to the Zoom meeting, thinking that that's going to help them with their anxiety. And it does provide that short-term relief. But the problem is now that we've taught our kid, oh, avoidance is the way to make yourself feel better. Not doing right. the thing that scares you actually provides relief.
0: Yeah. And it's saying, I agree that you can't handle this. You know, the parent isn't saying that overtly, but by avoiding it, you're the parent's saying, you know, I also believe that you cannot handle this normal anxiety people get before a test or something, you know, or like, I feel like that's not safe for you to feel that that's going to hurt you to feel that or that it is a problem. So it's, it's that validation of, you know, normal feelings are things that you can't handle.
1: Right, and they're getting that message, and then you're further reinforcing it. Although you think you're protecting them, but no, now it's getting reinforced. And you know, the big thing about anxiety too is that it's one of the most common struggles that people have, but it's also the most treatable. And many people will go years without treating it because they're like, "That's just how I am. That's just who I am. That's just my personality." And the longer anxiety goes on, because we're constantly in this cycle of avoidance and reinforcement it starts to spread into other areas. So you're anxious about taking a test. Now you're anxious about public speaking. Now you're anxious about speaking to people at school. And now you're anxious about traveling and it like starts to bleed into other areas. And then now you have this more generalized anxiety where you just have this uneasy feeling about everything. And that's why it's important not to just let it go and pretend like it doesn't exist because it doesn't go away on its own it needs to be addressed in some way, in a healthy way. Wow. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense.
0: So if you could have a few things just generally to offer parents to help them avoid creating this kind of anxiety, what do you say to them? You know, let's say they have a very young child and the parent maybe has suffered anxiety in the past and feels, you know, there may be that genetic component and that there may possibly also be an influence of the parent, you know, because the parent's kind of containing it. and what. What kind of general guidelines can you give parents for when children appear to be anxious in a situation?
1: So I think first to be able to tell yourself and tell your child that you're not alone and struggling with this. Lots of individuals struggle with this. And what we do know stats wise is one out of every five children is dealing with some kind of mental health issue. So it might be anxiety. It might be depression, ADHD. Lots of kids struggle with this, but they don't all present the same way. So first of all, understanding there's nothing wrong with you and there's nothing wrong with your child. They don't need to be fixed. The other thing too is it's important for the parent to explain to their child how anxiety works. Children developmentally are very concrete thinkers, very tangible, very here and now. They take things literally. So like, for example, my brother-in-law, when he was a kid and people would say, hey, Christmas is around the corner. And he would like, look around the corner, go down the street, look around the corner. Like that's (laughs) that tangible, you know, phrases of speech don't make sense, you know, frog in your throat, butterflies in your stomach. Like they literally think those things are there. Anxiety is abstract and many kids can't process abstract things. So a lot of kids suffer by themselves in isolation because they can't put words to what they're experiencing. That's why it's so important as the parent to educate yourself and then to explain to your child how anxiety works, how anxiety tries to act like it's a friend, but it's kind of a bad friend because it tells you all the things that are wrong with you in the world that aren't always true or it's an exaggeration of the truth. So it's explaining to them how that works. So they know they're not alone and they know that, ah, there's a name for this. And then they can externalize it. So it's not me that's worried. It's, you know, these intrusive thoughts that are invading my brain that's telling me that things are true that's not actually true. And then the other thing is to help guide them in changing their thoughts uh, and challenging their behaviors. Stop rescuing them from their thoughts and their behaviors and actually give them the tools. So taking deep breaths, being able to replace the scary thoughts with more adaptive thoughts. And then, you know, like how you said, Janet, like normalizing the feeling and acknowledging the feeling, you know, oh, I know that it's hard when you feel so worried about going back to school. It's hard to feel that way, isn't it? So when are some other times that you felt like something was hard and we were able to overcome it together and helping them with that problem solving mindset where, yes, this is a problem. This is uncomfortable. I Acknowledge it. And then what do we do with that discomfort? How can we get past that? And I did that with my son when we were uh, in the middle of this pandemic. And it was like a couple months in and myself and my family, my in-laws, we were all kind of isolating as well. And they wanted to come over for, for Memorial day. And my son is like, I feel uncomfortable with them coming over. And I was like, yeah, I'm uncomfortable too. And he was like, really? And I said, yeah. I said, we haven't seen human beings in two months. So I feel a un- uncomfortable too. And so he's like, oh, and I said, so then let's just be uncomfortable together. And he's like, okay. He's like, but I'm not hugging them. And I was like, me neither. <laughs> uh-huh. <laughs> So acknowledging it, uh, I just felt it. my
0: temperature like drop when you said, like just that. Just let's be uncomfortable. Let's be this, or you know, oh, that's how you feel. Yeah, that's normal. I mean, giving that permission to feel it.
1: To mm-hmm.
0: it's all good. It's all okay.
1: Right, and you should be uncomfortable. Like it's not abnormal to be uncomfortable when we haven't seen people in two, three months, however long it was. And so I think we have to be able to normalize it rather than dismissing it or trying to fix it real quick to make them not feel it.
0: Or being afraid of it ourselves, which will come through. Like with the school, you can even find out more. You're holding space for that feeling to be okay. Like, oh, you're anxious about school starting, you know, and then you can ask what worries you, you know, and you can get that information to actually help them make a plan or make it a little easier for them but yeah it all has to come from that beginning place of normalizing it accepting it
1: exactly because if we dismiss it or we rush through it or we say oh you shouldn't feel that way then they're going to feel like there's something is wrong with them and why why is my parent dealing with it fine and I'm feeling all horrible so there must be something wrong with me and there must be something that I need to fix But if we can validate it and say, yeah, I get why you feel that way, or even if we don't understand it, we can just say, oh, I get why you would feel that way. You know, it makes sense. And then making those connections, I think it's really important for parents to really make connections for their child between their emotional experience, their somatic experience, like what they're feeling in their body. So yeah, when I feel nervous, my heart beats really fast in my chest. I could feel it. I feel the lump in my throat because- You know, we're seeing people we haven't seen in a long time and we're kind of afraid of getting sick. I totally get that. And so if we can make those connections and they understand that I'm just not anxious for no reason, there is a reason why I feel this. And this is why, and it's a valid reason because it's valid for me. You know, that's what we do in cognitive behavioral therapy. We're literally making the connections between our thoughts, our behaviors, our emotions, and our circumstances, because people automatically assume, oh, everybody in this pandemic is having a hard time. That's not true. There's some people who are thriving. There's some people who they're doing remarkably well. And then there's other people who are doing not so great at all. But all of those experiences are valid because we all have different experiences. So all, although everybody, the whole world is, is experiencing a pandemic, we all have different perceptions of the event. We have different life experiences because of the event. 10 people can go through the same thing and 10 people will have completely different reactions and responses to it. And we have to normalize that all of those responses are valid given that person's experience. Yes, absolutely. And also I think a big, big thing for kids with anxiety is to create a lifestyle where you're beating anxiety on a daily basis. So you're giving like mini challenges. Like, you know, I know it's really hard for you to walk down the street because the dog behind the neighbor's fence always scares you. Do you think as we go on our walk today that you want to challenge yourself by staying on the same side of the street? Or do you want to do it a little bit easier today and go on the opposite side of the street? What do you think? And so kind of giving them opportunities and and empowering them. How would you like to beat your fear today? How would you like to beat your anxiety today? Do you want to take it a little bit easy today because you don't feel equipped? Or do you want to like see how brave you can be? And you even saying that, so if you know that you struggle and your kids know that you're struggling with certain things, you could also then say that like perfect example, a couple of weeks ago, I had a cool opportunity to be on a panel for PBS kids. It was being done live and streamed and I was in my office and my husband and kids were at home and they were going to catch me live. Afterwards, when I came home, my son is like, mommy, you did such a good job. My daughter's like, yeah, good job. And then they were like, were you nervous? And I said, yeah. And they're like, really? And I said, Yeah. And they're like, but you didn't look nervous. And I was like, because right before we started, I closed my eyes. I took a breath and I said, I can do this. I'm excited about this. My heart's beating fast because I'm super excited. And then once I started, it was enjoyable. It was fun. It was engaging. And so then, yeah, I didn't, I wasn't nervous anymore. And he was like, so you did it while scared. And I was like, yeah, exactly. I did it while scared. And so being able to let them know that I did feel nervous, even though this is something that I do often, I still do get nervous and this is what I did about it. And that's how I was able to overcome it. And that's a good model because that way you're showing them you're creating a lifestyle that, you know, mommy doesn't get it right every time either. And sometimes I have these fears that I have to overcome and this is the way that I do it.
0: Right. And even seasoned professionals get nervous and it's just a human experience not to feel shame about or like extra worried because, oh, I shouldn't be feeling like this. I mean, I used to feel like that with speaking that I'm sweating and all these things are happening and this is my problem and I'm messed up. And and then of course, it just makes it a ton worse when I finally realize that, oh no, these are normal things and you just, you breathe through them, but it's perfectly valid to feel that way. It really helped me a lot.
1: And sometimes we misinterpret our somatic or body experiences. So you know, that's a great example that you gave is that you that feeling before speaking that your heart might've been racing, maybe you kind of felt this dryness in, or lump in your throat, whatever it was. And then what happens is that when people have a lot of anxiety about those things, they're like, oh my gosh, I must be feeling this because I'm anxious because I think I'm not gonna bomb this experience. When maybe the feelings that you're having are actually because you're really excited and maybe you're like 80% excited, 20% scared. Mm-hmm. And the fact is that when we're excited, And when we're scared, our body kind of does the same thing with worry and anxiety. We tend to get those wires crossed and we misinterpret the signals that we're getting. And we're thinking, oh, my heart is racing. So I must be scared and I must be the wrong person for this. They made a mistake, you know, Um, and then we interpret that feeling as worry and anxiety and that we're now this imposter who can't do this job.
0: Yes, that's a really good point. And actually, it reminded me of something that I try to remind parents about this time of year, uh, when it's before their birthday, or or we're going to take them somewhere that they're excited about. That for children, especially for young children, that don't have the life experience to be able to compartmentalize. Oh, I'm excited about this thing that's going to happen. It really does feel the same as fear to them. So when everybody's getting them all excited about the holidays and the presents they're going to get, or something now their behavior is going off the rails, you know, or they seem so fragile or they're acting out or whatever. And there's a reason for that. And it's that uh, dysregulation. That's the same dysregulation they would feel if they were upset or afraid, but it's just about happy excitement.
1: Right. And that's why we have to make sure that we explain to them that those sensations can feel and be experienced in the same way in very different circumstances. And it doesn't mean that it's a bad thing. It just means that our body is reminding us that it's working the way it's supposed to. And that we have to then bring in the cognitive part of it of saying, okay, oh, my heart's racing. Rather than interpreting it as fear, we can say, oh, my heart's racing. I must be super excited and maybe a little bit scared. you know, And then being able to just come to terms with that and putting words to that so that they're not just alone suffering in these abstract experiences and they don't know how to use it. And that's why I'm a big proponent of using feeling words and empathizing with kids and equipping them with different types of feelings so that we can expand that feeling vocabulary and they can be able to say, oh yes, I'm very frustrated, I'm very irritated, I'm very overwhelmed, I'm very bored. And we can really help them understand what that experience is. That, oh, when I experience that, It must be that I'm feeling that.
0: And also it helps, I think, for us as parents not to kind of overstate. Sometimes a child will be startled and the parent says, oh, you were scared. That was scary. You know, where in fact, they were just startled or surprised like what i was thinking about the holidays and such is that anticipation like that's that's a feeling you know that you have anticipation it's not it's a little different from excitement you know cuz excitement is more like you know what's going on and anticipation is like you don't really know how it's going to be but you're thinking about it and it's wonderful for parents to think in terms of specifics and what is really happening here you know instead of like oh that made you sad that i said no about The whatever it was boundary that I had to set makes it harder for us to set boundaries if we start believing that we're making our child sad every time instead of like disappointed or something that doesn't feel as heavy and damaging.
1: (laughs) And we may get the word wrong. We may be totally off base, but at least it's a starting point. And I think a, a big thing that I hear from a lot of parents, especially now after, what is it, nine months now of quarantining for many people They feel like, okay, well, that's all well and good. You know, I can empathize and I can, you know, reflect their feelings and I can educate them. And then what if none of that works? Like, what if it crashes and burns and now they're having this big old tantrum? Like, what do I do now? A lot of what I really encourage parents to do is to be okay with your child's big emotions. Like, it's okay that they're upset. And if they're having a tantrum, if they're having a meltdown, if they're saying they hate you and they don't want to talk to you and, It's okay for them to feel that, and I think we have to allow them that space to be upset, to be overwhelmed, to be disappointed, to be scared and upset, all those different things, and to say, well, when you're ready to talk about it with me, uh, I'm here. I think that so often parents put a lot of pressure on themselves to feel like they have to solve it in the moment and that I'm going to do this strategy and it's going to work. Uh, sometimes they don't sometimes it crashes and burns and sometimes you know your child is not following the strategy and doing it the way you think it's supposed to work and that's okay too because again you're modeling for them that there's going to be disappointment and there's going to be times when things don't work out as planned and that's okay too having that resilience and having that growth mindset and having that that feeling that I can still move on I can still have grit and resilience like that's that's also a good lesson too
0: absolutely yeah and i think it it starts with trusting the feelings that it's not only normal, but probably really positive experience that your child is letting go of a lot of pent up emotion. And, you know, it's very rarely just about that one experience that set it off. It's almost always that they're having this cathartic release of everything they felt coming from us and in their lives. And so it's all good. And yeah, talking to children during that gives the impression that we're not comfortable, and that we're, we want them to stop, and that we're not okay,
1: right? And even with the the little ones, the one to three year olds, you don't even have to use the words. It's just your presence, it's your posture, it's your energy in the moment. So, because if you're huffing and puffing and turning all kinds of colors and rolling your eyes, they're they're gonna feel that what I'm feeling isn't okay. Because obviously, the way this parent is showing their frustration is showing me that it's not okay. So, it's about really doing your best to, to tell yourself in your mind. It's okay that they're having a hard time. It's okay that they're having a tantrum. This is developmentally appropriate and normal. I'm not a bad parent. <laughs> like to really be saying those things to yourself to dial down your emotions because you're going to feel them, you know? So it's just a matter of what, what is the energy you're giving off when your child is in that moment of, you know, nuclear explosion, right? In that moment.
0: Exactly. And I think this is probably the biggest challenge for parents because what we're giving off is what we're actually feeling. So we really have to feel safe, which is for most of us turning a 180 from the way that maybe we were raised or, you know, we instinctively feel. We really have to feel that, okay, this is the right thing to be happening right now. This is important for my child. This is positive. They're going to feel better after this. You know, this is all good. And just taking care with our own anxiety to, to breathe and, not try to say anything, not try to use a tool to fix it or do anything, but, but just trust. And then yeah, afterwards, maybe we could think about it and say, oh, you know what, i be doing too many activities, or this is too late in the day for me to have done this, or there's other reasons, you know, that'll make sense to us to problem solve for what's going on. But yeah, it just takes practice to see how much clearer and better children feel when they've gotten these feelings out of their system and haven't gotten the message from us that they should be afraid to even feel that way, you know, that it's wrong to have that, that feeling, which is, yeah, it's very easy for us to give that impression because it does feel all wrong to us, but our child that we've spent so much time trying to keep happy and content that they're, they're not, you know, it can feel like a failure to us as parents.
1: Oh yeah, definitely. Especially when you're, you know, putting your all into something and you're planning this amazing outing or whatever, and then they. Ruin it with this tantrum, and you're like, "Great, you're so ungrateful!" After everything I've done for you, and it's really easy to feel that way. But I think it's really important to know that a lot of behaviors that kids do is just—it is really developmentally appropriate. It is expected. It's not out of the ordinary. When it becomes out of the ordinary, when it's excessive, when it causes significant impairment for a long period of time, and you really long period is like four to six months for kids in terms of excessive behavior um, tantrums or excessive anxiety and worry, then that's when you want to seek out more professional help to make sure you, you're on the right track because doing it on your own is probably going to be too overwhelming and you want to get additional support. But for the most part, most kids, the way that they handle things, it's, it's pretty much expected and it's, it's normal. If we can tell ourselves that it'll be easier to handle it.
0: Well, thank you for being somebody that's helping parents handle it. And thank you again for this discussion today, I really enjoyed it and I yes. learned a lot.
1: <laughs> Thank you. I really appreciate being on here and talking about this because I think that if parents and kids are more equipped, we can really change the way people perceive a lot of stuff.
0: Thank you so much. Thank you too. Please check out some of the other podcasts on my website, janetlansbury.com. They're all indexed by subject and category. So you should be able to find whatever topic you might be interested in. And both of my books are available in paperback at Amazon. No Bad Kids, Toddler Discipline Without Shame, and Elevating Child Care, A Guide to Respectful Parenting. You can also get them in e-book at Amazon, Apple, Google Play, or Barnes & Noble, and in audio at audible.com. You can get a free audio copy of either book at Audible by following the link in the liner notes of this podcast. Thank you so much for listening.
1: We can do this.